Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying your December. And I hope you guys are getting all geared up for whichever holiday you celebrate during this time. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Krampus, whatever it is. Anyways, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep you guys too much. I just wanted to come in before the podcast like I normally do and just uh, wish you guys a happy holiday season. And uh, today I have on the podcast uh, Seif Randy Williams, who is uh, Zoltan Bathory from Five Finger Death Punch's personal security guard. He had a lot of really awesome stuff to say, and I'm typically not too dumbfounded for the most part when I talk to somebody, but his stories were just incredible. This is a super fun one. I tried to work the audio on his end as much as possible, but, you know, I really think that the quality of the overall conversation will be enough for you guys to want to stay stay tuned. Um, but it was a super fun conversation. I hope to do it again with him where I can I can control some of the environment a little bit. But uh but yeah, anyways, please check out my conversation with Seif Randy Williams. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Just STFU podcast. And today on the podcast, I have legendary Wing Chun <laughs> Seif, Randy Williams. Randy, how's it going, buddy? Great. Fantastic. Happy to see you. Yeah, happy to see you too, man. It's been a, it's been a long time. I don't think I've seen you since November, so it's been a year. I think the last time I saw you was at the Pennsylvania show um, where you were with Five Fingers. Yeah, in November or December, correct? Yeah, it was around then because it was snowing. Yeah. And that's actually where we met because you have a security company, which is also an investigations company. So not only are you a deadly security guard, but you're a PI as well. Only after eight beans. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah so the, that's where we met was in i believe 2018 you started going on the road with uh with five finger death punch mm-hmm. well i met you the first uh show that you guys did together after i joined yeah so how did you how did you get involved with five finger death punch well it's a long story really um go ahead and tell zoltan, well you know zoltan is a martial arts enthusiast yeah and uh he he actually sought me out. He was, you know, you probably know from going on the road with him, what he used to do before he had me along with him and, um, and other guys that he trained with, he used to, um, go from show to show. And when they arrive at a new town, he would just look through the yellow pages, you know, and he would find, um, a local martial arts school that he could go in and train at. So what he did, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, he, um, he went into a school that happened to be um, my school, one of my representatives in Virginia, Johnny Simon. Mm-hmm. 
And um, he went into Johnny's school, and he was sitting in the lobby or whatever after they were training a little bit, and he sees my picture on the wall. And he goes, oh, Randy Williams, yeah, I've been following him since, since I was a kid. You know, he, he used to get the Kung Fu magazines and stuff from way back in the 80s. And, you know, I've been in those martial arts magazines since 82. So he goes, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I guess I'm a fan or whatever, and I'd really like to meet him someday. And Johnny goes, well, that's my teacher. And Zoltan, really? So he uh, he says to Johnny, can you, can you call him? So Johnny says, yeah, sure, let's call him up. So now let me back up a couple steps. And, uh, and I go to about two weeks before that date, one of my students came over, a guy named Eric Burns, and he was in the service, and he was over in Iraq. And he comes to training one day, and he goes, hey, while we're lifting, do you mind if I put on a CD? And I'm like, yeah, just go for it. Put it on. And he goes, they're called Five Finger Death Punch. He goes, I saw them when I was in Iraq. They came and did a show for us. And I'm a big fan of theirs. And I said, well, I, I like it already because of the name, you know, Five Finger Death Punch. Yeah. 70s movie, Five Fingers of Death. And, you know, Kill Bill, there was the reference to the Five Finger Death Palm, I think it was. Anyway, so I go, well, I like them already, you know, from the name. So he puts it on, and I'm like, yeah, I like this, you know, this is great. So we're listening to it while we're working out, and he's telling me, yeah, I saw them overseas, and the main guy is a big martial arts enthusiast. And he says, uh, you know, they, they get me through my day. They got me through some rough times. And I was like, well, I could see why. I really, I really do like this music. So he goes, well, why don't you borrow the CD? So I borrow it, and I put it, you know, I'm playing it in my truck all week, and he comes back a week later, and he goes, hey, I brought this, another CD of theirs you might you know, want to hear. So I'm like, yeah, put it on. So now it's playing. Okay, that's what, I had to set the stage. The CD's now playing, and my phone rings. And it's Johnny Simons calling from Virginia. And he goes, hey, Steve, I got this guy here who is a fan of yours, and he really wants to talk to you. He's in a band that travels around, and uh, he popped into my school, and he was just wondering if you would talk to him. I'm like, yeah, hell, put him on. So he, he gets, comes on the phone. He goes, oh, hi, Steve. This is uh, Zoltan Bathory. He goes, uh, uh, I'm in a rock band. You know, you never would have heard of us. And, you know, we're not popular or anything like that. And I said, well, try me. You know, I listen to music. I might have heard of you. And he goes, well, it's called Five Finger Death Punch. And I go, oh, I'm a big fan of yours. He goes, no, you're not. You've never heard of us. I go, and I hold my cell phone up. And, you know, the bleeding is playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, holy shit. You know, and he, and he, at first he thought somehow Johnny set it up. But, you know. Yeah. It wasn't. It was all just a total coincidence. So Damn. then I tell Eric, I tell Eric, uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I tell Eric, you know, it's the guy from Five Guess what? And he's like, holy shit. You know, so Eric was all excited. And so we start talking and, and Zoltan says, you know, listen, I really have to meet you. You know, we're going to be in Pennsylvania in a couple of weeks. Can you come? And I said, yeah, can I bring Eric? He goes, bring whoever the fuck you want. So, <laughs> I brought Eric with me, and, you know, it was a big day for, for, I guess, for both of us, you know, but Eric was just so thrilled about it, you know, and Zoltan treated us like kings. Yeah. So there, there's a, another little funny story that goes, I don't want to bore you to death, but, um, so we go, we go to the venue, and we got there pretty early, and so Zoltan was still sleeping in the bus, mm -hmm. and um, so I had another number to call it Bruce Ryder. Yeah. Uh, oh, Bruce. I love Bruce. So, shout out to Bruce. So, um, 
Bruce, I called Bruce and I said, hey, it's, it's me, Randy Williams. And Bruce knew who I was from, you know, because he's a big martial arts enthusiast. So he goes, hell yeah, come on in. I'll, I'll go to the back eight, meet you, and let you in. So he brings me in and he pulls me over by catering. And I'm standing around um, back there and he goes, listen, I, I got stuff to do, but, you know, just make stuff home, have whatever you want to eat breakfast, you know. And people are walking by, you know, Rob Zombie's people, and they're walking by, and they're looking at me like, who's this guy? You know, Who are these guys standing here? Because everybody on the tour, as you know, knows each other. And by the, yeah. in the morning, they're like not used to seeing anybody who doesn't belong there. So I'm standing around kind of, you know, people looking at me funny. So about, you know, 10, 10 after 10, Bruce calls me and says, Zoltan's uh, woke up, and he's anxious to meet you. They'll be coming out of that brown tour bus over there. So I'm standing there, and I'm like 100 yards from the bus, and I see the door open, and this guy comes out, and he's kind of, you know, shielding his eyes from the sun and looking around. And he sees me, and he literally comes running towards <laughs> me, and he stops like 10 feet in front of me, and he's jumping up and down going, it's Randy Williams! It's Randy fucking Williams! I don't fucking believe it's Randy! And let me tell you, everybody, all the you know, crew are, are going, who the fuck is this guy? For Zoltan to be so excited. I've never seen Zoltan excited. <laughs> I'm telling you what, he was jumping for, I'm not even exaggerating. Oh, I believe so, you. When he hears this, you know, he'll confirm it. So, you know, Zoltan just saw to it that we got the red carpet treatment. You know, he had the, he, he had us, you know, go back in the trailer, pick all the shirts we could possibly ever want, you know, souvenirs, whatever we wanted, red carpet, backstage, anything we wanted to do, all access. And uh, it was from that point forward that Zoltan and I became kind of inseparable. Yeah. Well, dude, that's really, that's actually really funny that you were talking to your friend Eric, who had got the CD because he saw them at the USO that they did a few years back. Well, I mean, it's been more than a few years now. But that Zoltan called you while you and your friend were listening to Death Punch. Exactly. <laughs> you had had, you had, I'm assuming you had um, uh, War is the Answer. You were probably listening to the second record. And then mm -hmm. your friend Eric gave you the first, the first record. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what happened. Exactly. Actually, I have, I have some pretty, I wouldn't say it's like funny, but uh, I've told Zoltan this. Uh, the last time I think we were in Europe somewhere, I don't remember. Um, but I told Zoltan, I was like, you do realize that I've been there uh, on every, pretty much every version and every facet of the Five Finger Death Punch career, right? And he's like, wait, what? And I was like, dude, my old band in, in LA, Grimefield, used to open up for Five Finger Death Punch before they got signed at the Knitting Factory, the Whiskey at Go-Go. Like, mm -hmm. we were at... What was that? That's my hometown, L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we had played two out of the, th I think, two out of the four shows. So half of their shows before they got signed. And then in 2010, I went on tour with them um, on the Mayhem Fest with my old band in this moment. And then, you know, of course, Bad Wolves and Five Finger have been we're pretty much inseparable from 2018 to 2020. <laughs> exactly. So, so we have this connection too, you and I. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just funny that like, you know, because I've, I've known, you know, Ivan and, 
and Zoltan so long that it's just like going to like from seeing, you know, our half sold shows, excuse me, going to see like our half sold shows in 2005 and 2006 to, you know, at the whiskey a go go to seeing like, you know, sold out shows with us and five finger and Megadeth at like Wembley arena in London. It's, it's just been, it's, and I told him, I'm like, it's, it's, you do realize how crazy that is. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I I guess it is. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I've been there. There was like a gap between like 2010 to like 2000 and I don't know, 17, I guess where I didn't tour with them, but nothing really changed from 2010 to 2017, you know, cause then later on in 2018, you know, Jeremy left the band and then, and then Charlie joined and then now Andy's in the band and, you know, so it's like, I, I feel like I've been there for like the crucial moments. <laughs> Certainly you have. I was actually there for Charlie's um, audition. Which uh, was really good. Yeah, that was in that was at um, that was in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. I remember that day because we were all told that we couldn't be on stage. Because <laughs> we, no, we're, we're... Go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was, was just, just saying that uh, we were we were told we couldn't be on stage because they were filming a music video. But when I heard the drums, I'm like, "That's not Jeremy." I've heard yeah. Jeremy play. I've I've heard Jeremy play drums for fucking sixteen years. That's not Jeremy. Yeah, you would recognize it immediately. Yeah. Well, I had I was in touch with Charlie before his audition, and we were talking back and forth, so I actually got to meet him that night, that day. And um, so I was stood kind of like right next to him, and he was very nervous. Um, and he would look over at me, and I was giving him the thumbs up from the side, saying, you know, you're doing great, you're doing great, and uh, just trying to encourage him and everything. And he did a fabulous job, and, of course, he made the grade. Um, we, we all knew he would, but you know, he, he wasn't too sure he was going to make the grade, but he did. And he's been a great addition to the band ever since. I, and honestly, like after, after Europe, because, you know, I know, I, you know, Zoltan does his own thing, you know, the, and Ivan does his own thing. And I felt the most camaraderie before, before Charlie, and Andy joined the band. I felt, you know, I felt the person I saw the most was Chris, because he's he's you know he's pretty outgoing. He's always out and about, running around, you know. Yeah. But I know Zoltan is doing a million things even when he's on tour, so I, I try not to bug him, you know, or anything like that. Um, but when Charlie and Andy joined the band, I mean, it at first when I met Andy, he was just filling in in January and fe- in February, but there was like. There was because they're I think they're because they're closer to my age. I felt like there was a lot more camaraderie camaraderie with all the camps now because, you know, me and Charlie had like started to get to know each other from one because we were there on the first the first tour that he did. And then I think there was only one tour that they did with Charlie that we weren't on. Mm -hmm. And then when Andy joined the band, I'd already known Andy James. So it was like, all right, cool. Another homie. And, but then like, you know, we would go out, you know, get drinks, get into trouble, you know, I, I, but I felt this, like, I felt this sense of like camaraderie and like, I was actually, you know, 
it, it felt a lot better than it than it than it had in previous years. Because I mean, you yeah, know, Zolt, Zoltan's a business guy. He's not there to he's not there to go out. You know, he he's he's there to do a job, and he's a business and he's business oriented, and he trains a lot. So I mean, you know, I I would never see would never see Zoltan out. Like even if it was just like you know, like Charlie or Andy would call me up, and be like, hey, you want to go to dinner, like stuff like that. So I really felt like adding them being the social butterflies that they are was definitely was well, I mean it was great for me because <laughs> yeah, I like those guys it's great for the brotherhood uh, sort of vibe but I will say this in defense of, of Zoltan not, not really defense but to help explain it Zoltan is a very um, a very kind of pack oriented band oriented guy and yeah. I don't mean band like a music band I mean like a group yeah very um, he's very centered on, he wants a group. He wants to be around people that he respects and loves. And he really loves that whole vibe. So the reason you don't see him that much is I think you, you hit it earlier. He's so busy. Yeah. He's one of the busiest people you'll ever meet. And so a lot of times he's got 5,000 people pulling at him in every direction. Oh yeah. Which is why I don't bug him. Well, yeah. And I try not to bug him too, but I'm included in some of it because you know, I'm with him. Yeah. And, uh, but I do know that he actually regrets a lot of times not being able to take part in some of that stuff because he is very, um, very much in tune with having this group, this band of Mm. brothers, of of, uh, atmosphere. He likes that. Yeah. And I mean, dude, I don't know everything that Zoltan does. I mean, he's one of our managers. So. I mean, that's not an easy job. <laughs> you know, I don't really, yeah, no. You know, and I know he, he co-owns a few companies. I mean, he's got a lot of shit that he's going on. Like, that motherfucker doesn't drive a Lamborghini and a McLaren and live in that big-ass house because he's sitting on his ass doing nothing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, he's never doing nothing. He's never doing nothing. He hardly sleeps. He's yeah. always, like, on the phone wheeling and dealing and... He's always organizing some new thing. He even spends time working on my career, trying to help me. Yeah. You know, the people that are close to him. He's busy with helping, uh, you know, Heather. Yeah. Her career, and he's busy working on you guys' stuff and his stuff. So he is never doing nothing. He never just lays on the couch and does nothing. Yeah, and that, and honestly, that's one thing I definitely, um, I really respect and look up to. Uh, with him is because he's not one of those dudes like he's he's an immigrant you know he came from from Hungary with like fucking five dollars in his pocket you know and then now look at him like he he like Zoltan is you know it's like he's built his own empire and he's he's and he's made the American dream his dream you know what I mean 100% and that's one thing that like people, because people don't really know. I mean, not that I know Zoltan very well. I mean, I've known, I've, we've been an acquaintance for like, like I said, like 14, 15 years, but it's not like we call each other on the holidays or anything like that. Um, but that's one thing I've noticed is that I know there's a lot of people that give five finger death punch a hard time, but I really think if they got to know what kind of per, like what kind of person that Zoltan is and his work ethic and how he's literally going, going, going. And he's always looking for, for, he's looking for the next band to try to do what five finger death punch did. And that's why he took us under his wing. 
And, yeah. you know, he's still doing it with bands like, you know, Fire from the Gods. And and people don't realize that he's not just in it for himself. Like, he's trying to make yeah. rock and metal better, you know? Really. And, and another thing that he does that I, I hope he doesn't get mad for me saying this, but he does a lot behind the scenes that maybe you don't even know about where he, well, helps, sure. out, he helps out some people that are less fortunate, that are, some are disabled, some are less fortunate financially, some yeah. have other, other personal problems that he's gotten himself sort of attached to. Yeah. And he does a lot for, for those people that he doesn't advertise. Nobody knows about it. Yeah. He doesn't talk about it in his interviews. Um, and he doesn't get the, the credit for it. And I don't think he wants the credit for it. No, he's just doing he it because he of, can. Out, of, out of the goodness of his heart. But I think, you know, I don't feel too bad in, in saying it to you. Um, I'd like the world to know, actually, um, just how much Zoltan does for yeah. the less fortunate. He helps yeah. out some, really, some people that really need the help and that really appreciate what he does for, for them. And a lot of times I, I am his intermediary for things like that. And he oh, okay. is, um, he's very, he's a very feeling person, a very loving person that you wouldn't, and he might not even like me saying this on, on the air, but he, he is <laughs> that person. Well, dude, I mean, that's awesome. I didn't know that, but you know, the fact that, that he does that, cause I know a lot of people do charitable things and then post about it. And that kind of, you know, that kind of grinds my gears a bit. Like if you're going to do something, do it because you want to do it, not because of what other people will think of you doing it. You know what I mean? And that's exactly what he does. Because for example, you know, when you said some people give him a hard time and, you know, they'll give him a hard time because they think he's whatever they think, who knows. And he'll never come back and say, you know, I've done more for the unfortunate than you'll ever do in your life. Yeah. He'll never say that. He'll never defend himself in that manner. I, I would, in a minute, in a heartbeat, defend him in that manner and say, you have no idea what you're talking about yeah. um, to that person. But as far as, um, as, far as he goes, he, he, he won't stick up for himself in that way. He won't use that as a weapon against his detractors. Wow. Dude, that I mean that that's really that's awesome, you know. And I've already, I've already I've I've liked Zoltan. I've already known how 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 hardworking he was. So I mean, it doesn't surprise me. But anyway, I, I want to get off the topic of kissing Zoltan's ass. <laughs> so well, for I, I don't want to call it that, but I mean it's just showing respect because no, so I know I was I was just joking around. So much that probably both of us have today in the positions we are in life right now. Yeah. We, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are if there wasn't a Zoltan. So oh, of course. We, I don't think I can ever say enough about what a great friend he's been to me. No, and I mean, he's he's helped Bad Wolves out when we were, you know, when we were literally nothing. We were called it. We had a different band name, and he's like, yo, that band name sucks. Change it. It's not marketable. Back when you were just Good Wolves, which nobody <laughs> wants a Good Wolf. We used to be called Eye of Tongues. Good change. Good, <laughs> it's it's kind of like, did you ever see that Robin Hood Men in Tights where the, the witch's name was Latrine? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says, Latrine, that's an unusual name. And she goes, well, it used to be Shithouse. And he goes, good change. Good change. <laughs> say, yeah, I remember that. I haven't watched that movie in such a long time. And I remember when I used to have cable 
Um, it was always on Comedy Central. I would you, it would seriously be like on Comedy Central like four times a week. Like you want to watch Robin Hood Men in Tights? Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good change. <laughs> so for people who don't know, and maybe you know, you can help me shed some light on some stuff because I don't I don't know what the difference is. What is Wing Chun Kung Fu? And how does it differ from, I guess, traditional Kung Fu? Well, it is a traditional Kung Fu. But okay, Wing, Wing see, Chun, I didn't know that. Well, Wing Chun is, is one of many styles of Chinese Kung Fu. There are, um, there are literally hundreds of styles. Some are, you know, most are based on the animal movements, you know, crane mantis, tiger, crane, snake, um, leopard. There are, are, and there are really esoteric styles. Now, my teacher used to tell me there was such a thing as a shrimp style and an elephant style, you know, which are very obscure, but still practiced in some places in China. So Gong Fu is kind of a, uh, a catch-all phrase for Chinese martial arts. You know, like karate is, is Japanese martial arts, and there are many styles of karate, you know, Ishinru, Shorinru, and, and many styles. So in the Chinese martial arts, Wing Chun is one of many. It's one of the newer styles, having been invented about 400 years ago, back when I was in high school. <laughs> All right, I was in college. I was trying to make myself seem younger. But anyway, um, Wing Chun is a style which is based on the movements of the snake and the crane and was originally developed by two women. Um, a, a woman who needed to learn to defend herself, whose name was Yim Wing Chun. In Chinese, we say the last name first. Yeah. And so Yim Wing Chun. And so Wing Chun really means beautiful, eternal springtime. And she was taught by a nun from the Shaolin Temple and defended herself adequately against the guy that was trying to, you know, wanted to marry her and wanted to actually, he killed her father and wanted to kill her fiance. And she learned Gong Fu and ended up killing this guy. And then afterwards married the guy she wanted to marry. And he said, you know, I really want to learn the style that you were taught. And it, it was a new style invented just for her. So they named it Wing Chun which means Wing Chun fist or Wing Chun boxing. But it would be like the equivalent of calling it, you know, um, Heidi boxing, you know, yeah. if, you know, if it was Heidi Shepherd that invented it. Yeah. So when we call it Wing Chun, it's beautiful springtime, which doesn't sound real uh, tough or it doesn't really sound like a five fingers of death type thing, but it was just the name of the, the woman who, who was invented for. So Wing Chun ended up flourishing in Hong Kong, and it was eventually taught to Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee then mastered Wing Chun, came to the United States, and then started adding more to it and created his own style, which was called Jeet Kune Do. So what ended up happening was Wing Chun became Jeet Kune Do, and Bruce Lee taught a guy called Ted Wong Kam Ming, who was my next-door neighbor growing up. Oh, shit. Bruce, Bruce Lee's school was as far from my house as the barn that you just saw is from my house now. Jesus. So I grew up like peeking in the windows, watching them train. And you may remember if you've ever seen the, the Bruce Lee document or the Bruce Lee life story biopic mm -hmm. where they have a bunch of kids peeking in the window at them training. I'm one of those kids. I was one of those kids. Oh shit. And, and yeah, Bruce used to chase us away. Get out of here, you little rat. You know, they always talk about how Bruce Lee was so sweet to kids and all that stuff. You know, do magic tricks and all. He hated us, but my next door neighbor was in there training. 
So I used to pull on his jacket, you know, will you train me? Will you train me? And the guy wouldn't. He used to say, oh, I'm, I'm no good. I'm, I, you know, I can't teach you. And so I pursued Wing Chun. And I started getting some notoriety, and I was winning fights, and I was doing, you know, the magazines way back. And eventually later on, one of my students was having dinner with Sifu Ted Wong, Bruce Lee's top student. And he says, would you like to come, you know, to dinner and meet Sifu Ted? And I was like, yeah, you know, let's do it. So I came to dinner, and I go up to Sifu Ted, who passed away some years ago, um, and I was like, Sifu Ted Wong is such an honor. And he goes, what are you talking about? I've known you since you were a little kid. You were that pain in the ass that used to bother me all the time. You look exactly the same, except now you have a mustache. <laughs> he goes, I've been following your career in the, in the magazines and everything. And he goes, I'm very proud of you. And if you still want to learn from me, I'm happy to teach you now. So I became his student at the same time in Jeet Kune Do and um, learned from him. So eventually, Sifu Ted said, you know, you're my top guy and, you know, you're the, the heir to the throne, so to speak. So I have the line of the Jeet Kune Do from Bruce Lee as well. Oh, shit. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So oh, yeah. how, so how old was, was Bruce Lee famous when you were spying on him giving, um, Jeet Kune Do? Yeah, not, well, he was famous in the Chinese community because he was yeah. a movie star since he was a little kid. Yeah. You know, he was, he was like, um, you know, a, a, a child star. And then he ended up becoming a bigger star when he was a teenager. He was kind of like the James Dean of Hong mm -hmm. Kong. So he started those kind of rebel without a cause type movies in Hong Kong. So he was well known in the Chinese community in Chinatown. Because I was born and raised in Chinatown. So I knew of him through that from the time I was really little. And at that time, he was starting to star in the Green Hornet as Cato. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, back then in the 60s, TV stars were not the big stars that they are today. You know, TV stars were kind of like, you know, um, they were well-known. They were, they were somewhat famous, but they, people, they didn't have the star quality that TV stars have today. So Bruce Lee wasn't a huge star yet, but he was already becoming better and better known in the Western world as Cato in the Green Hornet. Yeah. But in the Chinese community, he was already a superstar. Okay. Damn, I, I didn't realize that he was a child star. I guess oh, yeah. I, must, I, guess yeah. I must have missed something in the last doc I watched. <laughs> well, yeah. a lot of the documentaries focus on his later career and his death, you know? Well, because he wasn't famous here. He wasn't a child star in America. He was a child yeah. star in Hong Kong. His dad was a movie star, too. That's how he got into the movies when he was young. But back then, he was a local celebrity in Chinatown, you know, and everybody knew who he was. And we were, you know, all as kids. My, my good friend Milton Chan back then, he, he and I used to make it a point to go down to the school with a couple other guys and peek in the windows, you know. So Bruce got sick of us looking through the windows at his school at 628 College Street. So what he eventually did is he soaked up the windows. So we went to peek one day, and we looked, and the windows was all, were all so soaked up. And he opened the door and looked out, and I <laughs> pointed at us, laughed, and shut the door. So, you know, that was the end of our peeking in at the class. <laughs> Jesus, man. I mean, thinking back on all that stuff, do you is that when you, when you really wanted to start learning martial arts, or were you already yeah. learning martial arts then? Well, I was always interested in martial arts. 
from my earliest memory because my dad was in, in the martial arts. And so, you know, when other kids were out throwing a football or whatever with their dad, I was learning how to kick and punch. Hmm. But so I was always interested and I had some little bit of knowledge, very, very little bit of knowledge in the martial arts. But when we had this local celebrity training, like literally 300 yards from my house, um, you know, it was very interesting to me. And that's what really, you know, sparked my, my interest to become a full-time martial artist in life. Um, he was teaching guys that were big stars back then. They used to come to that gym at College Street. Um, he had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but back then he was called Lou Alcindor. Mm-hmm. And one thing he used to do, uh, he had Stephen Queen, James Garner, James Coburn. You know, they're all stars from probably you don't even know them. Cause I know. I know who Steve McQueen is, man. Come on. Okay. Well, you know, you're young, so I didn't know if you would. I'm 34. But, I ain't that young. I didn't mean to insult you. Um, <laughs> but, but he was teaching on his desk. So one of the things he used to do, now College Street, his College Street gym sat at the corner of Alpine and College in Chinatown. And College Street, right at that particular point, becomes a super steep hill that's probably... I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It goes up to Chavez Ravine, which leads up to uh, Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. So there's this really steep hill that's right at where college and Alpine are. And um, what Bruce used to do is race people up the hill, and he would kill everybody in the race, including he would beat Kareem Abdul-Jabbar up that hill. Jesus. Yeah, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one stride is like six of Bruce's strides. Yeah. But, that, but he could run, man. He was fast, fast. And he would beat Kareem Jabbar up the hill. Now, on a straightaway, no way he would beat him. But up the hill, he would beat him. Wow. What do you What do you think of, I guess, there are people have been starting to call it the curse of the dragon. Yeah. You know, the curse of the Lees. Because didn't Bruce Lee's dad die in a weird way, too? Yeah, and... and... You know, supposedly there was this curse on the family, and of course we, we talk about Brandon, his yeah. son, died in a really weird way. Um, and so, do I believe it? Well, he's dead. Brandon's dead. Um, a little bit, but I also don't. I'm not as an investigator. I don't write off a murder or or a accidental death by misadventure as some supernatural connotation. I mean. It may have that. I mean, I've seen some things in life that I couldn't explain. Yeah. So I'm not one to just write off the curse and say, that's all hogwash. But but I do think that Bruce was murdered. And I do think that Brandon's death was a really freaky accident. And I know the people involved in it. So I, and I know what happened to him. And I know how it happened. Mm-hmm. It was a weird chain of strange coincidences. That, were, that are all explainable, but yet what made that all happen? I mean, yeah. serendipity, whatever you want to call it. Um, could there be some supernatural machinations behind that? You know, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm just a, a man. I don't, I don't know uh, everything there is to know about the world and, and life uh, and, and uh, other dimensions, other, other aspects of, of life and karma. But I do know that, um, in my opinion, Bruce Lee was murdered because he didn't get along with the movie studio that practically owned him when he was, you know, not quite as famous in America yet. 
Well, that was owned by Yakuza too, wasn't it? Or uh, well, the equivalent, the, the Chinese Chinese equivalent. equivalent sorry. Yeah, so they would call it the triad of the Kong. Triad. I always get those two confused. Well, they're they're very similar in nature. It's like saying mafia, Chinese mafia, Japanese mafia. Yeah. And you know, Bruce had a beef with the studio because I don't know how much you you know about you know, the, how the Chinese studios used to work, but. In the 70s, when Bruce was just coming up in the in the martial arts movies, you know, when he made like Fist of Fury and Chinese Connection and those kind of movies, um, the big boss, you know, Chinese stars back then were treated almost like circus animals. It was as though they were owned by the studios. So yeah. even though they might show up at a, at a meet and greet uh, in a Mercedes, the Mercedes was rented and owned or owned by the studio. And the star would be told, you're going to be there at this time, and then you're going to report back to barracks, and then you're going to train. And they were kind of like circus animals. They weren't like stars today that that have big homes and have lots of money. Yeah. They were more they were more controlled by the studio. They were owned by the studio. Jesus. So Bruce was in the, under those kind of conditions where, you know, you would think, oh, he's this big star, and he's like, you know, got a great car and a great house. But that isn't the case. And so what happened was Bruce had this connection to America because after all, he was born in San Francisco. He was a U.S. citizen. And he had already done some work in America with the Green Hornet. And he had met some celebrities. There was a big-time director called Sterling Siliphant who put him in a movie called Marlowe with James Garner and put him in a series called Long Street with James Franciscus. So he had these connections to Hollywood. So what happened was Sterling Silliphant said, you know, I think you've got the makings of a big star here in the West. So he started um, lobbying for Bruce to be the star of the TV show Kung Fu. And they, the, the studio eventually decided, oh, well, the Western world isn't quite ready for a Chinese superstar or a TV star. Yeah. He, had, he had been Cato, but back then the way things were, I don't want to say exactly racism, but there were certain, I don't know, there was a glass ceiling for a Chinese um, entertainer. Yeah. And so the studio didn't feel that Bruce would be right for Kung Fu and they made David Carradine the star. That really, really hurt him bad. And he went back to Hong Kong and then started making movies that were really big hits in Hong Kong with the you know, martial arts. Well, Sterling Silliphant felt that Bruce really did have that star quality and he put him in a couple things that he was doing but he eventually paved the way for Bruce the star and enter the dragon which I'm sure you've seen oh yeah yeah and when Bruce was was told okay you've been chosen by Warner Brothers to star in Enter the dragon he went to the studio owners in Hong Kong and said hey I've got this great opportunity I'm going to go to America I'm going to be a big star and the studio kind of said oh no you're not you know, you're our guy. You're making us a lot of money here in Hong Kong. You're not going to America. And he said, well, yeah, well, yes, I am. I'm, I'm going. And they said, no, you're not. And basically it boiled down to like, you know, fuck you, I'm going. And they really kind of said, well, fuck me, really? So Bruce, yeah, really, and went and did Enter the Dragon. Well, before Enter the Dragon was released, Bruce was dead under some really suspicious circumstances. Yeah, I never understood because there's a whole bunch of different things that I've heard over the years. You know, there was uh, the myths that, like, um, 
or you know the the stories of like you know they weren't they didn't do like a um an open casket funeral because he was like covered in bruises and bumps but then there was like this the stuff how like he removed his sweat glands to look bit oh, yeah. better on camera is, yeah, is he that, did do that oh he That's did true. do that the open casket is not true he did have an open casket okay. um he, he didn't look like bruce lee in the casket but um but yeah, he did have his sweat glands removed because he was very self-conscious about the fact that he sweated profusely from his underarms. Mm. So he had them removed, um, which in a way could have contributed to his death in the respect that he may have been more vulnerable to a poison or to whatever. He took a pill just before he died that was called Equajesus, supposedly to re- relieve a headache. And the doctors back then thought he had an allergic reaction to equagesic because he was epileptic. A lot of people don't know that about Bruce Lee. So a lot of people don't know that he had really poor eyesight as well. But, you know, he had his sweat glands removed, which, you know, may have weakened his immune system in some way. There could have been some infection that was caused or something else. But that certainly didn't cause his death directly. Mm-hmm. Um the night of his death, now Bruce didn't used to smoke weed, he used to eat marijuana, he used to chew it. And the night of his death, he did eat marijuana. And he also took this pill that was called equagesic, which was given to him by his girlfriend that he was seeing, who happened to be working for the Chinese studio. She was a starlet who was very, un, well, I would say not very popular at the time, but after Bruce's death, she became a Chinese superstar. Suddenly after, so there's some suspicious activity there, because another circus animal, quote unquote, of the of the movie studio seduces Bruce Lee, and he dies in her apartment after taking a pill that she gave him, ostensibly a headache relief pill that he had an allergic reaction to, and caused what's called a cerebral edema, which is a swelling of the brain that causes your brain to just expand in your skull and eventually kills you. So people would say Bruce is like one of the most fit people, if not the fittest man on earth. So how did he die at the age of 32? And that's what's suspicious. So it's always been my belief that Betty Ting Pei, the girl that he was with that night, was paid by the studio to poison him with some sort of poison that was undetectable to Western science. You know, like you may have heard of something called succinylcholine, mm-hmm. which people were using here in this country to murder other people and got away with it until finally science caught up to them and developed a test for succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is something that can be injected into your system and it causes all of your muscles to freeze up so that you're completely conscious, but you can't move. Oh, and so it's, it's like it's total paralysis, but you're completely awake for it until your heart stops working. Oh, shit. So there, so there were a number of murders obviously committed with succinylcholine, which went undetected because it, it disappears from the system shortly after it's administered. But eventually, there was one particular murder case that the doctors had reason to suspect succinylcholine, and then they developed a test to detect it. Now, in China, there are herbal poisons that have been in use for thousands of years that would probably have been undetectable to Western science in 1973 when Bruce Lee died. So it's my belief that that equagesic capsule 
was laced with some sort of poison, something like succinylcholine, which when Bruce went for autopsy would be unseen by Western or undetected by Western doctors. Now, another funny thing about Bruce's death was when Betty Ting Pei found Bruce Lee unconscious in her bed, she didn't call an ambulance. She didn't call the police. She called the owner of the studio that she and Bruce both worked for. And that man arranged for Bruce to be picked up in an ambulance. Now, Bruce wasn't taken to the nearest hospital to where he was found, nor the next nearest, nor the next nearest. He was taken to the eighth nearest hospital, which was owned by the same guy that owned the movie studio. Mm. So you could say, oh, well, I want you taken to my, my hospital because it's the best and I control it. Or you could say, I want you taken to my hospital because the guy that runs the autopsy there works for me. Yeah. So this is how, this is why there's a lot of suspicion surrounding Bruce's death. So this is also circling back to why I don't think it was the curse of the dragon. Yeah. That's nuts, man. See, like when, when people talk about Bruce Lee's death, they like in documentaries or anything, they don't put that in there. Like, well, you know why? The reason they don't do that, I think a lot of people don't really know that much about Asian culture. But I also think that because Bruce was married, he was married to a Caucasian woman at the time, there's a stigma to the fact that he was seeing this Chinese starlet and was in her apartment, you know, when he was married. Yeah. So I think that a lot of that was kind of hushed up to kind of keep his reputation uh, a little cleaner. Yeah. But yeah, because there, anytime I've ever watched a documentary or anything on, on Bruce Lee, they just, they leave it so ambiguous. You know, they're, they're just like, well, you know, he did this and then this happened. And then like, all right, we're going to start talking about something else. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like, a, you know, a, a, like a taboo subject in a entertainment. Little a little bit, but, you know, keep in mind that his top student and best friend was my teacher for many years. Yeah. And so I was privy to, and I also worked for Linda Lee since I was 17 years old. Yeah. So I was privy to, not from her so much, but from my teacher, certain bits of information that maybe the general public wasn't. Fair enough. That's, that's, that's crazy, dude. Um, so there's, there's one thing that I, I saw a podcast that you had did a couple years ago and in the headline was um, the Jack Ripper murders solved. Did yes, you, <laughs> you solve them or? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, I want to hear about that because that, that's been one of the biggest, uh, biggest mysteries of the Western world. And I, I mean, how many, how many people 130, did you? 132 years. Yeah. Yeah. How many people did Jack the Ripper kill? In my opinion, 13, probably 14. But are his you, credit was five. Are you one of the people who believe that he came to America? And that's no. why they couldn't? No? Oh, okay. Well, I would like to hear your version of what happened and uh, and who and who done it. You know what I mean? I'll be happy to tell you. Um, you might be sorry you asked. 
No, um, I'm not. Let me preface it, let's, you know, not to, well, I'm going to bring Zoltan into it just for a second here yeah. and tell you that Zoltan has said to me, the reason that you solved these murders was because you're a classically trained Western detective, but you also have an Eastern mindset, which allowed you into the minds of the murderers. And I said murderers. Um, which anyone else that's tried to solve it has been a Western detective or perhaps an Eastern-minded person, but not both. Hmm. So the Chinese Gong Fu and the Eastern mindset that I've had all my life contributed to my ability to solve the crimes. So I've always been interested in the case since I was very little. You know, I've always um, read these true crime novels that, um, you know, there's this, these novels that you buy about a crime and basically there's a section in the middle of the book with a bunch of pictures that you're not supposed to look at until you finish the book, but you, I always look at them first. And, you know, they, they detail, you know, a serial killing or some sort of, uh, of a murder case that, that either has been solved but was, was had a lot of notoriety or something unsolved. And I was always very interested in these novels. And Jack the Ripper was the one that intrigued me the most, probably because it was unsolved. And through many, many years of reading these books and studying, and then eventually it led me, and Sherlock Holmes novels, or Sherlock Holmes stories as well, that always interest, interested me since I was a boy, um, led me to a career in criminology and um, you know, law enforcement. And so what I ended up doing was, in 2012, after having read everything there was about Jack the Ripper that you could buy, um, I decided I set out to solve it because no book or no documentary, no, no story, a lot like the Bruce Lee ones that you talked about, they always leave you at the end with, but who knows? Yeah. And, and no one ever adequately proved their case, in my opinion, in any of the books or documentaries. So I said, you know what? I'm a detective. I'm going to solve it. And because of my career in rock, you know, you may not know this, but before I worked with Five Finger, I was I worked with Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, U2, Shakira Hell Wise, yeah. and I, I was all over the UK for many, many years, and also in the martial arts. I've got schools in, in England, and I would go over there quite frequently on martial arts seminars or demonstrations or on, on different um, security details. So I was in, in London quite a bit. And so I decided in 2012, I had a unique opportunity because I was working in London on a security detail. And I decided that I was going to visit the crime scenes, you know, and, and really look into every bit of information I could get on the case. And I was going to solve this thing. And I, in the course of my career as a, as a detective, I developed my own system of solving crimes, specifically cold case murders. And because of all these novels that I've been reading since I was a kid, I noticed that there were these commonalities that would occur in every case. There would be these just weird things that would happen. Some of them aren't even scientific. Like, for example, when you read enough of these novels, and maybe if you watch forensic files of these cases enough on TV, you come to realize that there's these weird things that always seem to happen. Like, the murderer always seems to get convicted on the victim's birthday. Or, you know, it's not scientific at all. It's just this, these weird coincidences, but they happen. Yeah. And they constantly happen. So you almost have to 
take them into some kind of consideration. And then there are these commonalities that, you know, murderers insert themselves into the investigation. They love to pretend to, to have some information to give the police so that they can meet the policemen involved and try to find out what the police know, um, try to somehow um, get get more information that they wouldn't get from the newspaper. Yeah. Sometimes they pretend to find the body. You know, if you watch Forensic Files, a lot of the episodes, there'll be some guy at the beginning of the episode where the newscast, the newscasters are at the scene and they're interviewing the neighbors, and there'll be some guy in the driveway saying, oh, she was a really nice old lady. I hope they catch whoever killed it. And at the end of the show, you find out he's the guy that killed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because murderers tend to insert themselves in the investigation. And the Ripper was probably the first to ever do that. So what I did was I created this system with 27 sort of filters or seeds, sieves, um, that I, I, I used to see that there were these commonalities, like a guy would in, insert himself in the investigation. A guy lived within half a mile of the murder scene. And there were these different things that I would see as commonalities. So I made 27 such filters. And what I would do is I would take all of the names involved in the case, whether it was a policeman, a witness, a neighbor, a spouse, uh, their teacher, if they, were a, a, if they were a weight trainer, the guy that ran the gym, anything, any name even remotely involved with the case. Yeah. And I would drop it into filter one. And I would assign a weight to filter one. So when I dropped all the names through, let's say lives within half a mile of the crime scene, sort of of the thousand names I dropped in, six would drop out. Yeah. So I would give them 10 pounds of weight. And then their name would then be reinserted into filter two, found the body at a crime scene. And I would assign maybe 15 pounds of weight to that. And then certain names would drop through and I would give them some weight and so on and so forth through the 27 filters. And at the end, there'd be a couple of guys that would weigh 300 pounds. And there'd be a couple of guys that would weigh 100 pounds. And there'd be a couple of guys that weighed 50 pounds. And then what I would do is I would work backwards than the normal detective method. Rather than try to prove them guilty, I would do everything possible to prove them innocent. Mm. So in a modern day case, what, what, what that would equate to would be me going to say, I thought you were the killer. So let's say you weighed 300 pounds through my system. Mm -hmm. What I wouldn't do is I wouldn't go find your sister, brother, best friend, I wouldn't go to them and say, hey, I think Kyle's a murderer. Yeah. I think I need you to help me convict him. What I would do is I would say, I think Kyle's innocent. A lot of the evidence is pointing towards him, but I don't think he did it. So I need you to help me prove him innocent. And I would gather all this information that they would then want to help me. And they would tell me his whereabouts here, his habits here, anything about him, the car he drives, whatever information. Is pertinent, and then that that information may very well exonerate or prove him innocent, but it may very well make him look guiltier. Mm, okay. So I did I did the same thing with the the names that dropped out of my filters. There were three guys that weighed more than everybody else, and the more I looked at them in trying to prove them innocent, the more they looked guilty and guilty and guiltier. 
until finally I went to England and did some research on them and uncovered more and more evidence that kept making them guiltier and guiltier. Holy and that shit. is how, how I arrived at the, the Ripper identity. And it was actually three men working together, being paid by a fourth very rich socialist anarchist, one of the founders of the anarchist movement, who absolutely hated England, and in his papers actually praised Jack the Ripper, praised him and said, if we ever catch Jack the Ripper, um, we would at first hate him, but we would eventually come to realize that rather than put a bullet through his brain, the bullet would be better put in the brain of the person that owned the wretched den where the woman that he killed did business. And he made a lot of statements in his writings which not only praised Jack the Ripper, but had certain kinds of what we call guilty knowledge, meaning knowledge about the crime that only a person who did it or knew the person who did it could know. Yeah. For example, he said, you know, if we ever catch the person, um, we would understand why he did what he did. After all, when that woman asked him just to pay her rent for the night and he killed her, we might think such and such. Well, I thought that, wait a minute, how do you know what the girl asked him? Yeah. Well, he knew because he talked to the murderer. And he said something else. He said, any judge that would convict the Ripper is actually worse than all the Jacks together. So he made a statement that Jack the Ripper was more than one person. How yeah. did he know that? He also made statements about why Jack stopped killing, which is one of the first questions people ask on these Ripperology sites. You know, Ripperology is the science of catching Jack the Ripper. And people always ask, well, why did he stop killing? Well, this rich prince from Russia, whose name was Kropotkin, Prince Kropotkin, um, actually explained why the Ripper stopped killing. Prince Kropotkin is one of the founders of the anarchy movement. If you ever see that, people paint that circle with an A in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He devised that logo. That okay. was Prince Kropotkin. So Kropotkin actually was convicted in, in his own country and expelled from Russia when he was a prince for conspiring in the assassination of his own uncle, the Tsar of Russia. Oh, shit. He went off to France and was again convicted and imprisoned for organizing political assassinations against his enemies, the enemies of anarchy. Mm -hmm. He then fled to Switzerland and was actually expelled from Switzerland, which is hard to do because they're very neutral. Yeah, they're again, yeah. again, for conspiring in anarchist murders, assassinations of his enemies. So Kropotkin was, had a reputation for paying people to kill his enemies. Kropotkin names the Catholic Church and the British Empire as the worst enemies of anarcho-communism, his cause. And the Ripper killings were a complete attack on the British Empire and on Christianity. They were done as a form of propaganda to bring the rest of the world's attention to the plight of the Jew and the oppression of the poor in England in the 1800s. Propaganda is like very near and dear to the anarcho-communist cause. Propaganda is a word that even almost means Russian misinformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, but even groups like ISIS or, 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 you know, the Taliban, they use propaganda. They put these well, 
orchestrated videos on YouTube yeah, of yeah. them killing, killing people, you yeah. know, burning them to death or chopping their heads off, and those are monetized. So every time you watch it, they're getting money. Yeah. The Rippers did the same thing. They, they killed a girl at their own clubhouse, uh, which was a, a socialist anarchist club where my main Ripper was the president or steward. And they did it as propaganda, and they charged the newspaper to come into their club and look at the murder scene. And they gloated in their own Yiddish newspaper, which nobody translated until I did in, you know, a few years ago. They gloated in their paper. These idiots are paying us to see the murder scene, and they're actually funding our operation to destroy their empire. <laughs> Jesus. So um, I'm sure you saw the movie uh, From Hell. Oh, yeah, with Johnny Depp? Yeah, yeah, with Johnny Depp. I mean, I thought it was a great movie. So it's almost like that, except the old guy wasn't wasn't the killer. There were three killers, and it was the it was a Russian guy who was paying these people to kill these women. Yes, because what they wanted to do... See, the, what, you, what you need to understand, to understand the motivation... I, mean, I'm a, I think I'm going to turn another light on, because I think it's getting dark in here. You probably can't see me. Um... The, if, if you think about, if you, if you understand the anarchist cause, anarchist communists, beginning with Karl Marx in the 1840s, mm-hmm. don't hate prostitutes, per se. They hate prostitution as an institution. They hate prostitution as the most egregious abuse of human beings possible. They feel that prostitution is something that is, absolutely the worst sin that one human can commit against another. So they didn't hate prostitutes. They hated prostitution. And what they did was they said, look, in some way, this is a war against prostitution and against what was called the sweating system, which was a horrible abuse of the Jew in England. They were forced to live in the worst slum, which was called Whitechapel, still called Whitechapel. And they were forced to live in squalor in this horrible, in these horrible conditions where there was homelessness, famine, disease, crime, murder. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to bring the world's attention to the plight of the Jew and the plight of the prostitute in Whitechapel, just a few miles from Buckingham Palace, where there's polo games and, and tea and crumpets and changing of the guard and fountains and pomp and circumstance. What they wanted to do was show the world that the British Empire wasn't all that it was cracked up to be in their eyes. Yeah. And so they thought, how are we going to get the most publicity to our cause? How are we going to, what's the, our best route for propaganda? So they thought, well, sex sells. We know that. Even today, if you look at the newspaper and you see, you know, Dow Jones Industrial up 10 points and you see something about, you know, the presidential election. And then you see prostitute dismembered, you know, on Main Street. That's the first thing you're going to read. Yeah. And imagine in the 1800s the kind of, uh, of popularity that story would get, the kind of um, readership. And, in fact, it did work because people were reading about the Ripper murders in Boston and Philly and Paris. And so what they were doing was they were trying to shine a light on their cause. But what they thought was, this is a war. And in any war, there have to be casualties. Yeah. It ain't going to be us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So what they did was they chose the 13 or 14 most decrepit, almost ready to die, wretched human beings living homeless, prostituting themselves for something to eat. And they killed them in order to almost benefit the, the countless others. So yeah. and in fact, I hate to give the Rippers credit, but in fact, their actions did cause Queen Victoria to clean up Whitechapel, to give jobs, to give health care to those prostitutes, to, to wipe out the sweating system against the Jew, the slavery, the quasi-slavery of the Jew in Whitechapel. Yeah. So they actually did accomplish what they set out to do. As much as I hate to give them credit, if you want to call it that, they had an altruistic cause, but the manner that they chose to accomplish their goal was very gruesome and cruel and grisly. However, if you look at, again, I don't want to sympathize with them. I don't want to give them credit. But if you look at something like the Vietnam War, where so many died for what cause, for, for what nothing really was accomplished by it. But if you look at that kind of, of casualty count, and you think their casualty count to accomplish their goal was 13 or 14, I'm not saying that that justifies the cruel murder of these women. Nobody's, nobody's God. Nobody's entitled to take anyone else's life yeah. in, in an almost peace. But, but yet, they did have a reason, a motive for their murders. And that was to end the Jewish slavery and to end prostitution in Whitechapel. Now, was this a, a made-up part of it that the that the victims, the five victims that were in um, uh, around Whitechapel, um, they in in the From Hell movie and some other things that I read about it that they were, um, you had to have been a doctor to give the wounds to these people, or is that just is that fiction? Well, it was. A fact until my three co-authors who are the three top forensic doctors in the world dr michael Baden, who used to have the autopsy tv show on oh, yeah, HBO, yeah. and he also recently did the second autopsy on epstein that proved he was murdered he's my co-author in my book sherlock holmes in the autumn of terror um dr cyril wett who was involved in everything from jfk's autopsy to john benet ramsey to dr henry henry c lee is my other co-author he was the famous Chinese doctor in the O.J. Simpson trial that stood up and said something's wrong here with the tainted blood evidence that was planted by the police. So these doctors are all in agreement with me, that's the reason they're with me in my book, that the killer didn't necessarily have to have medical knowledge. He only had to have the ability of the average hunter here in Northeast Pennsylvania. Yeah. Anybody that hunts, um, for any length of time, can gut a deer in like a minute or two yeah. with very little bloodshed, removing all of the organs almost surgically with no surgical training. They learn by doing since they're kids. Their dads take them out and they show them how to do it. Oh, yeah. They can do that in a heartbeat in under two minutes. I've got a friend, my friend Tim, can hang up a deer in my barn and he can have it completely gutted, all the organs out of it, Hardly makes a mess in my barn in under two minutes. Yeah, well, they have to know how to not make a mess so to not attract wolves and bears and other predators that want that meat of the animal that you just killed. Right, the bad wolves out there. <laughs> so, so, you know, these 
the, the, the rippers were guys from the old country. Two were from Poland and one was from Russia. And it is my opinion and my co-authors, the doctor's opinion, that a guy who had learned by doing was already probably a skilled hunter because in the old country, that's how you ate. You didn't go to, you know, Walmart and get, you know, cuts of meat. You went out and hunted and you gutted the animal and you, you know, you provided for your family. Those guys back then all did that. So if you take a guy that's already a skilled hunter and he starts killing and and the violence escalates in his murders through a series of killings, by the time he gets to Mary Jane Kelly, he's already pretty familiar with how to excise organs and how to find them in the body. The human body isn't that much different internally than a wild boar, which would have been hunted in Poland and Russia. Jesus Christ. So the the short answer to your question is the three top experts on the planet agree that the Ripper didn't have to have surgical training, only a skilled hunter. Well, I mean, I know a lot of dudes who are hunters now who are completely against factory farming that they still, to this day, like that's how they provide for their family. You know, like there's guys out there who are like professional hunters. It was like, now that I only eat wild game, I don't eat any, any meat from, from the store. Like if I don't kill it, I don't eat it. Um, so yeah, that's definitely interesting because I know because, because of, because of the people I know who do hunt today and all of, you know, they've, they've, they, I have, I've never been hunting and I've never seen, seen it like it, but they've explained to me how to pack out an animal and how you have to make literally as <laughs> there has to be as least amount of blood as humanly possible, especially when you're hunting like deer and elk and you're in kind of uh you know, a woodland area where there could be mountain lions, bobcats, bears, coyotes, uh, you know, one of my buddies, John Dudley, uh, he was hunting, I believe it was in British Columbia, and him and another friend were were hunting, uh, I, it was deer elk, I can't remember, but they didn't realize that they were hunting next to a wolf den. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're packing out this animal, to, getting ready to take it back to their vehicle, and next thing they know, they're surrounded, two guys surrounded by like five or six wolves. Right. So, One of them was Tommy. Tommy. <laughs> so, you know, he tells a really compelling story and I, I don't want to, de- uh, I mean, I'll, I'll finish the story, but it'll diminish the actual impact of his story. So if you guys want to hear that story, just go follow John Dudley on, you know, at knock on TV podcast or whatever. And, uh, you can hear the story of him fighting him and his buddy, two guys fighting off wolves. So, uh, John is a, is a bow hunter and his buddy is a bow hunter as well. And typically one person or two people will, will bring a gun just in case. But for the most part, like John didn't have a gun. He had his compound bow. So, you know, his friend had to pull the gun and they they literally had to kill their way out of this circle because the wolves the wolves were going to attack them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um recognize the importance of being able to do a clean stripping of the animal. 
Yeah. But when you're next to a wolf den, they can already smell the blood in the air, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's crazy. So that makes a lot more sense. I don't know. I just think because I saw the movie at such a young age, that's kind of like the the mythos that I kind of stuck with was that it was a higher up in, uh, you know, and, you know, I guess a Freemason or whatever they, they depicted the, the, the actual murderer to to be in that movie from hell. Um, but it does make sense. If you have any hunting, um, experience at all, you would, and you know, if your victims start adding up, you're going to get to know where, where stuff is in the human anatomy. So it's like, yeah, the first one might be like, all right, you know, I know how to hunt. I'm not really sure where this is and this and this, but you know, you look (laughs) as gross as this sounds, you open them up and look around. You're like, Oh, okay. The next time it's going to be even easier. Next time after that, it's going to be even easier as well. So, right. But that's, that's crazy. So you have three medical doctors who you just explained who also agree. That's they're not just medical doctors, Kyle. They're the world's top forensic scientists. Okay, I'm sorry. The world's top forensic scientists agree with you. So you think it was three people in total or three people with somebody paying them? So it would be four. So they were being funded. I call them the four jacks because every deck of cards has four jacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, we have the jack of hearts. That was Louis Deemschutz. He was the one that it was proven that one one of the victims was stabbed in the heart with a nine-inch blade. Yeah. And then other cuts were done by a six-inch blade, which, by the way, serial murderers don't use two knives at, at one murder. Only when there's more than one murderer involved are there two weapons. Yeah. So the one that stabbed one of the victims, Martha Tabram, in the heart with a nine-inch blade was Louis Deemschutz. I call him the Jack of Hearts. The main cruelest of the murderers was a 17-year-old boy called Isaac Kozabrowski from Poland. He actually carved his initials in one of the victims' face. I hope we can get to that. But um, Kozabrowski, I call him the jack of spades. Spade is not a spade like you dig in the garden. In the deck of cards, a spade is a blade, a knife. Yeah, yeah. Then the third uh, ripper was the jack of clubs. He actually was convicted for beating a policeman with a club. And he was also a member of the club, so I call him the Jack of Clubs, Samuel Friedman. Then the prince, Kropotkin, that I mentioned earlier, that funded the whole operation, I call him the Jack of Diamonds. Because he had the cash. Right. So the four, I call it the Four Jacks. And I call us the Four Sleuths. Myself and my co-authors are the four doctors, the four, not criminologists, that brought the rippers down. Jesus. So you said you wanted to, to talk about the 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 jack of spades and how they they found his initials carved in his victim's head Mm -hmm. all right if you look at i I did you a youtube video i hope you'll link it to this a youtube video i did there's a there are photographs of one of the victims catherine eddowes who was killed in mitre square the mitre by the way is the cap that the pope wears yeah so they wanted to spill the tainted blood quote unquote of a prostitute on the head of the head of Christianity at, at that time. So when you look at the pictures of the victim, you'll see, and people have, have conjectured on this for 132 years, 
she had these underneath each eye. She had a, a V, an upside down V with the point at the bottom of the eye yeah. on each eye. And she had one on her chin. And then she had these slices through each eye, running through each eye and through the mouth. And then she had three more vertical slices that just looked like a line across yeah. the cheeks and the forehead. Well, if you look at the victim and you look at the photographs, it, people have said, oh, he was trying to make her look like a clown with these Vs. He was trying to deface her in some Masonic or whatever they want to say. But when we look at the doctor's reports and my three co-authors' opinions, everyone knows who, who, who's a doctor that the ripple was knelt looking at the woman's face sideways so that her feet were too off to his right. And he was looking at her face and he was kneeling down doing the ripping as he was kneeling to her right. So, or actually it was to her left. So if you look at the picture, if you turn the picture sideways so that you're looking at the face the way the ripper would have been looking at it, you'll see the initials I-K, I-K, I-K carved in her face three times. Because if you would imagine the upside down V under each eye, but you turn it sideways mm -hmm. with the slice he put through her eyes and her mouth, what you see is an eye, the, the, the line that looks like the, the spine of a K. <coughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that V, which is now sideways, becomes the, the you know, the slanty part of the, of the K. Mm -hmm. So what you see is three Ks. And next to each of the three Ks, you see a line carved, which is the I. And in her chin is carved another V, which makes an M. Isaac M. Kozabrowski was the 17-year-old. Now, if you gave a 17-year-old kid a, a knife and you sat him at a picnic table and said, carve up this picnic table, kid, what do you think he's going to carve in the picnic table? His initials, his name. That's, that's what he did on her. Because they said, rip this girl to shreds. We need big headlines. I mean, rip, I mean, decimate this woman, which he did. But under the, under the instructions from Kropotkin and Deemschutz, and what he did was he caused IMK. He caused IK, 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 and just for um, an additional little touch, he put another V next to the other V on her chin. He put another V next to it, which makes an M. Mm -hmm. His initial, his name we know from, from history records, was Isaac M. Kozabrowski. Damn. So in that video that I, I sent you, and I hope you can link it somehow to this, I want your viewers to look at that, your listeners to look at that, and you can see plain as day when you turn that picture on its side. People for 132 years have been looking at it straight up the way we're looking at each other right now. Yeah. But when you turn it, it's plain as day. IMK is carved into her face three times. Jesus. So you said you came to this conclusion or you started in 2012. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 2012 was when I really set out to solve it. It took me a couple of years. Okay. So, and when was the last Jack the Ripper murder in your opinion? Cause you said that they only counted five of, right. uh, but you said there was upwards of 14. I think I know there were 13 and I'm pretty sure there were 14. And, and the last they... one was 1891. 1891 and where so where were the other nine murders is still in the same area yes all within uh within a, a half a mile radius is it true that the that the original five murders 
um, where their bodies were on a map made a pentagram? You could if you want to stretch it. You could. If you want to stretch it. Yeah, I mean, you could. But I don't believe that it was done for that reason. But there are people that have attached them together mm-hmm. um, as a pentagram. I could send you that. I have a, a picture of it so you can see. Oh, my dogs are going nuts. Don't, don't mind them. No, it's fine. <laughs> you, you can. I don't really think that it was done for that reason. And also, there weren't just five. Yeah. But if you do attach them in a certain way, they form a kind of a, not a perfect pentagram, but a kind of a pentagram. Yeah. Could you make those positions into the anarchist A? You know, I never tried, but I bet I could. Hmm. That'd be interesting. Well, that's a good thing you just brought to mind. So on my on my wall here, which your your listeners can't see, but there's a map of the murders there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I see them. Yeah, yeah. Start. So I could probably make almost anything out of that. Yeah, it's a very ambiguous shape. (laughs) But you you could. Do you think the locations were important? Is that why um, the actual locations of where the bodies were found, do you think those were planned? Or do you think they were, homie, you know, the Jack of of Diamonds was just like, yo, go do this. Do you think the placement was premeditated? Yes, the the locations, not all the locations, but some of them, for example, they did one, they, they had the, what they call the double event, the big uh, magnum opus of Jack the Ripper, the, the tour de force performance, was the night of the double event where they killed two women. They warned the police they were going to kill two women, and they did. And one of the locations was the actual anarchist club yeah. that Louis Dienschutz was the president of, and Prince Kropotkin was the founder of. The body was found by Louis Dienschutz in front of that club. And it was absolutely a propaganda move because nobody would know the International Working Men's Educational Club even existed in this modern day and age if it weren't for the Ripper killing. Mm-hmm. So they, they immortalized their club. Mm-hmm. And the second murder of the double event took place in Mitre Square, which I mentioned before, the mitre is the hat yeah. that sits on the head of the Pope. Um, and they chose that not only for that reason, but also because it was across the street from their worst enemy, um, Chief Rabbi Adler, who was another Jew, who was of a different faction. If you look at the, the, the political climate in England back then, there were Jews that were sort of in favor of a, a peaceful um, settlement with the Gentile over the situation. And then there were militant Jews, of which the Rippers were members, that believed in a violent solution. It would be very similar to BLM today, where you have some people that believe they should burn the cities down, and there are certain people that believe that there's a peaceful solution to the problem. And they're different factions. They don't like each other, necessarily, even though they're fighting for the same thing. Well, the Ripper's worst enemy had his synagogue directly across the street from Mitre Square. So they chose that strategically. They also chose the location for... If you know about the graffito that was left on the wall, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Yeah, yeah. They left. They actually left it on the doorstep of their worst enemy, um, or, or, or one of their worst enemies. A guy called Israel Sunshine lived in that house, which I was mm-hmm. the first person to realize that as well. So they didn't just randomly choose any old place to leave the graffito and the bloody apron that was taken from the victim in Mitre Square. 
they chose the house of a guy who was their enemy in the cause. He was a Jew as well, but he was of the peaceful solution faction. And what they were trying to do, in my opinion, was to send the police to his house to give him hell because, you know, there was a bit of evidence left on his doorstep and they thought the police would rouse him and maybe even take him into custody as the Ripper. Yeah. It didn't work because nobody knew, nobody noticed, but me. But it's a fact that they chose the Goulston Street location because it was his house. And also maybe a little bit of wordplay, Goulston, ghoul. A ghoul is actually a grave robber. Yeah. A person that takes body parts and which the Rippers were actually ghouls. Hmm. So you mentioned your book before. What is that called again? It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And the reason being that when I met with my three co-authors, the, the doctors I mentioned before, they thought that if I were to write my solution as a simple Jack the Ripper true crime novel, it would be one of thousands that would be ignored generally by the public. Yeah. So they said, you really need to come up with some kind of a hook, something that will get more people to read this. And we all decided that because all of us were drawn into criminology because of our interest in not only the Ripper case, but also our interest in Sherlock Holmes, we all decided that the best route to take would be to write it as a Sherlock Holmes novel where Sherlock Holmes solves the crime. Mm. And that Holmes does basically everything I did. And Watson does basically everything my co-authors did to support me in the investigation. So in order to kind of bring more people into the fold, so to speak, we chose to do it as a Sherlock Holmes story. And so the book is called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror, which um, the, the period when the Ripper was killing was known as the Autumn of Terror. Okay. And when, when did you release that book? 2016. 2016. And have you written any other books in this, in this type of genre? No. Um, that was actually my second venture into fictional writing. Um, true crime, it, you know, we can't really call it true crime because of the inclusion of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. But I've written a second book on the Ripper case, which is strictly the true crime version. Mm -hmm. But I'm waiting to release it until something happens with my Sherlock Holmes story. I managed to get my story to Guy Ritchie, who trains under one of my students, T1 Gracie in London. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I went to London to train T1, he arranged for, he told Guy Ritchie about me and my book. And Guy actually asked for a copy of my book. So Kiwan gave the book to Guy Ritchie. So I'm kind of hoping that eventually when COVID passes and movies are made again, that Guy will eventually think of making my book into a movie. Or I've also dealt with some true crime, I've, I've dealt with some people that make true crime documentaries for TV. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of everything in Hollywood is on hold right now because of yeah. COVID. So I'm kind of hoping that something will happen um, with my current book before I release the true crime, just the facts story of Jack the Ripper. Hmm. That book will be, will be called um, Jack the Ripper's Terror of London. So have you, for some reason, I thought you wrote more books, or is that just in different in different parts of your, different facets of your life? Well, yeah, I've written um, nine books on Wing Chun Gong Fu. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. So, 
So you've written 10 books in total so far uh, that have been yeah. published, but nine of them run were on Wing Chun Kung Fu. Jesus, man, you have a busy, you have a busy ass life. <laughs> well, I'm old. I'm old. I've had a lot of time to do all this stuff. But you, you know? don't, seriously, dude, you don't look like a day over, like maybe forty. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> you are you're obviously lying, but I appreciate it. No, I'm dead serious, man. Um, so where where can my listeners? Is do you have a website where they can go and check out all of this? Um, not you know, not only for your for your kung fu stuff but for the the investigation stuff too are there are there any websites that my listeners can go check out oh yeah well I, I hope they join my facebook pages i have not only under my own name randy williams but i have um randy williams kung fu mm-hmm. on facebook i'm on that and, and the book itself has a page called sherlock holmes and the autumn of terror i'm on that as well and so those are the two main sites if they want to see more about the book it's available on Amazon, Amazon UK, all the different Amazon sites in different countries. Um, so you can look up by the book's name, Sherlock Holmes in the Autumn of Terror, and that'll take you to the Amazon page where the book is sold. Sick. Well, Randy, dude, thank you so much for coming and onto the show and just going through all of this. I mean, like we kind of went all over the place between like, you know, talking about Zoltan Bruce Lee, you know, martial arts, and then just this entire expose on Jack the Ripper has just been super interesting, man. I'm definitely, I'm going to go pick up your book on Amazon, and I suggest anyone else who is interested in this stuff like I am, like, like, yo, all these people talking about watching serial killer shows, you know, if you don't buy this book, I'm going to be really, really upset at you. (laughs) I I don't think they'll be disappointed, because I, I did my best to capture the flavor of Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the, the yeah. author of Sherlock Holmes. I went and read everything that he wrote again before I wrote this book so I could capture the flavor of the time. During the period I was writing the book, I was only listening to Victorian music, you know, classical music, and I was only reading um, the, the current news of the day back in the 1880s, and so I kind of got myself into character for it, and I... I, I hope that I did a good job of, of replicating Doyle's style. And it, it's, it's got a lot of good reviews on Amazon, you know, quite a lot, like over 300 of five stars. So I guess I did okay. And I think that your, your listeners won't be disappointed if they pick up the book. Hell yeah, dude. Well, Randy, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Um, you know, make sure to go follow Randy on Facebook you know, the Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror page, the Randy Williams Kung Fu page, and maybe even just, you know, send my friend requests on Facebook. Maybe you'll be lucky. Maybe he'll add you. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, Randy, thank you again very much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And to all of my listeners, thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next week.